Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Ayers LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, Shopping During the Week, Background Music May Get You to Spend More, by Lisa Ward. In an article by Rachel Feinzig, Late Bloomers in Work, Love. Then an interesting article from the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, The IRS Makes Another House Call. We'll follow that up with an article by Joeen Kong, Instacart Fights Rudeness. Go back and get the bread sliced. An article by Jim Solish, My Father's Child is Turning 65. All these are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, Shopping During the Week, Background Music May Get You to Spend More. Does background music encourage customers to buy more goods? Perhaps, but it depends on what day it is. In a study based on three supermarkets in Sweden, researchers showed that background music did boost customer spending, but only Monday through Thursday. The researchers looked at three supermarkets in Stockholm, serving in total about 150,000 customers over three weeks, during which the stores switched between playing popular songs or elevator music in the background or playing no music at all. The type of music didn't make a difference on purchases, but Monday through Thursday, music encouraged customers to spend more. In a follow-up experiment, the authors found that in one of those stores on weekdays, customers spent an average $23.31 per person for each excursion, compared with $14.96 when no music was playing. On the weekends, however, the difference between having background music and no music wasn't statistically significant. What explains the differences in shoppers' behavior? On the weekdays, people tend to be more mentally and physically depleted, says co-author Carl Fizip Auborn, a senior lecturer at the University of Bath's School of Management in England. In such a state, he explains, shoppers tend to use intuitive processing rather than active reasoning, making them more receptive to the relaxing effects of music. The music causes them to linger longer in the store, look more, and ultimately buy more items, he says. To further test how music might affect the shopping experience, Auburn and his colleagues asked 600 people in the United States to imagine several activities that happen either on the weekend or weekday and how they felt during this activity. Then the participants were asked to specifically think about grocery shopping either on a weekday or weekend. Participants were shown an image of a shopping cart and then asked to select any item they would like to purchase from a list of 24 items. While selecting items, one half of the participants heard music and one half didn't. Afterward, the authors asked participants to rate on a scale of 1 to 7, with 1 being do not agree at all and 7 being completely agree if they felt mentally tired, 
mentally worn out, stressed, anxious, happy, satisfied, and excited. With seven reflecting the more positive feelings, participants who heard music on the weekdays scored 4.31, while participants who heard no music on the weekdays scored 3.96. That is a statistically significant difference of 8.8%, says Alborn. There was no significant statistical difference for the two participant groups, those hearing and those not hearing music while shopping on the weekends. The idea, says Auburn, is that music makes people feel better when they are depleted and often encourages them to continue shopping. But when people are already relaxed, as they tend to be on the weekend, music has much less of an effect. They don't need to take the mental shortcut. And now, late bloomers in work and love. Jerry Breen always wanted to have kids. For years, he wasn't with the right partner. Then he was with the right partner, but she couldn't get pregnant. They tried for five years, eventually resigning themselves to a life as just two, until the day's pregnancy test turned positive. He became a dad at 51. It was almost like a miracle, says Breen, now a 62-year-old father to 11-year-old Rosemary. Caring for a newborn in his 50s was exhausting, the Brooklyn, New York resident acknowledges. At the playground, kids sometimes ask if he's Rosemary's grandpa. But when he plays guitar to help his daughter drift off to sleep at night, the timing feels just right. So many of us have a secret internal timeline we're always measuring ourselves against. The ideal age would like to get that degree, get married, reach a certain title at work. Our fantasy chronology hasn't changed much over the years. A 2018 Stanford University study of people ages 25 to 94 found that all generations agreed that 26 is the right age to get married, 27 the time to buy a house, and 28 the moment to start a family. What if it's not? Saddled with student loan debt and overwhelmed by rising home prices, many millennials can't afford to buy their first place. Some 60-year-olds are in better physical shape than their parents were at 40. Everything from Botox to fertility treatments has scrambled the calculus of middle age. Instead of feeling pressure to hit life events on someone else's timeline, maybe it's fine to make your own. You got a college right out of high school. That's the rule, right? Says Nikki Ivey, a sales trainer and consultant outside Jacksonville, Florida. Once a teen mom, she got her undergraduate degree at 28. She spent years feeling like an outsider and failure as she watched her peers ascend in school and work, figuring she'd never catch up. One by one, she missed the milestones she'd envisioned in some imaginary dream life. Earning six figures by 30, buying a house by 35. Then she hit one, reaching the C-suite of a company. She didn't love the job. She did love sitting around the dinner table laughing with her kids. She ended up leaving the job and started to wonder about all those milestones. Do I even want them, she asked herself on whose clock. Younger generations are increasingly pushing back everything from the age they 
start a full-time job to when they begin saving for retirement, says Laura Carlson, director of the Stanford Center on Longevity. There are some downsides to the delay. Forgo buying a home and you could miss out on a massive asset. Postpone saving for retirement and you may face financial insecurity down the line. Fertility isn't forever and bodies break. We're also living longer, 30 extra years on average over the last century. Instead of rushing through all the big stuff only to face a long period of stagnation at the end of our lives, why not spread out the milestones? People are feeling like they're falling behind when in fact they're probably doing exactly what they should, she says. Working as a public defender in Rochester, New York, Danielle Ponder would frequently Google, did anyone make it after the age of 35? A gifted singer, she chose a career in law because she was passionate about criminal justice and wanted the stability of steady work. She sneaked in shows between court dates instead of committing to music full-time. I kept pushing the moment back, she says. At one point, she quit her day job, only to return a year and a half later, thwarted by the pandemic and disappointing bookings. As I was getting older, my dreams did become smaller, she says. On the last day of 2021, five days before her 40th birthday, she tried again. This time, quitting her job led to a debut solo album, television appearances, and sold-out shows. When I caught up with Panda recently on a rare mid-tour pause, she was feeling both shocked and grateful her success came when it did. I don't know if I could survive this happening to me at 19, she says. She thinks her insecure teen self wouldn't have handled the stress of the public eye well. It can be hard to make a transition later in life. After years of being single, Frank Gallagher worried about people ignoring or rejecting him on online dating sites. And after being on his own, the thought of sharing a kitchen with someone new, adopting to how they, say, put away silverware, felt overwhelming. Could I compromise, he wondered. For his now wife, Stephanie, the answer was yes. He was right. She dumped the forks in the drawer in one big clump. It turned out he really didn't care. There's a lot of things that don't matter when you're 60, says Gallagher, now 68. The couple got married at a Maryland botanical garden in December 2017. The fear of doing something new can turn exhilarating when it's a less traditional moment. Climbing made me really remember what it's like to be white-knuckled scared, says Deborah Hodling, a communication professional who first tried rock climbing at 60. It was so life-affirming. She realized how comfortable she'd become in her day-to-day life and wondered what else was possible. She joined the climbing club, purchased gear, and installed a pull-up bar in in her Redondo Beach, California house. She recently left her corporate job to start her own business, a jump she says rock climbing gave her the courage to take. I realize, she says, you can do things in all sorts of different orders. And now the article from the editorial page, The IRS Makes Another House Call. 
Democrats and the media are deriding the House GOP probes into abuses by government agencies. But we're glad Republicans are on the case, in particular regarding the Internal Revenue Service, IRS. In a Friday letter recently sent to IRS Commissioner Daniel Werfel, House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan demands answers about a bizarre and disturbing IRS house call. The letter recounts that on April 25th, a Marion, Ohio taxpayer received a visit from a man who claimed his name was Bill Haas and worked in the IRS criminal division. Mr. Haas said he needed to talk to her about an estate for which she was the fiduciary. She let him in despite having received no prior IRS communication. Mr. Haas claimed she had not properly filled out estate forms and owed the IRS a substantial amount. Only when the taxpayer presented proof of paying all taxes on the estate did the agent reveal that his visit wasn't about the estate at all. It was about several supposed delinquent tax returns related to the decedent of the estate. The letter says the taxpayer called her attorney, who insisted Mr. House leave the house, only to be told by Mr. House, I am an IRS agent. I can be at and go into anyone's house at any time I want to be. Mr. House finally left, but not before threatening to freeze the taxpayer's assets and put a lien on her house if she didn't satisfy the balance in a week. Fearing a scam, she called the local police who ran Mr. House's license plate to verify his identity. When an officer called Mr. House, Mr. House identified himself as an IRS agent, but said House wasn't his real name. He had used an alias. The officer, also suspecting a scam, warned that if he returned to the taxpayer's home, he'd be arrested. Mr. House then filed a complaint against the Marion police officers with the Treasury Department Inspector General. The House letter says the taxpayer on May 4th spoke with Mr. House's supervisor, who clarified that she owed nothing and said, in the understatement of the year, that things should never have gotten this far. Yet the following day, the taxpayer received a letter addressed to the decedent stating that the decedent was delinquent on several 1040 filings. This was the first and only mail notification the taxpayer received. The taxpayer was again told by the supervisor that nothing was owed and was notified on May 30th that the case was closed. If true, this is something else. An agent of the Treasury wielding the power of tax enforcement shows up unannounced at a taxpayer's home. He lies about his identity and his purpose to get inside, then threatens the taxpayer with punishment if she doesn't pay a tax bill that she doesn't owe. The IRS agent leaves only after an intervention by a lawyer, and when local police call the agent, he sicks the Treasury Department on the officer. Mr. Jordan wants all IRS documents and communication related to this episode, and Mr. Werfel can't be allowed to stonewall. This is the second report of an IRS house call since March when another T-man visited journalist Matt DeBeebe at home on a day he was away testifying to Congress on government abuse. 
What the hell is going on over there? What in IRS workplace culture gives agents the belief they can do this? Democrats bestowed $80 billion on the IRS last year to empower people like Bill Haas. Republicans clawed back some of it in the recent debt ceiling bill, but an IRS that makes threatening house calls deserves to have it all clawed back. And now the article by Instacart Fights Rudeness, Go Back and Get the Bread Sliced by Jai Wing Kang. Instacart shopper Stephen Delser was at a New Hampshire grocery store filling an order for a customer when he saw that the variety of pasta sauce the client wanted was out of stock. Delser messaged the customer and let her know, and then things got saucy. The product showed up online, she insisted, and should be right there on the top shelf. He responded no, his eyes were working just fine, and the sauce wasn't there. Delser finished the shopping, dropped off the bags, and broke up with the customer. Next day, I got another order from her, Delzer said. I'm like, nope, I'm not taking it. Arguments have long erupted at the supermarket where people go bananas over shopping carts clogging the aisles and fender benders in parking lots. The rise of grocery delivery apps such as Instacart, DoorDash, and Uber Eats has shifted the bickering online. Shoppers and customers say app disputes have at times mushroomed into battlefields over substitution, pets, and more. Instacart, the biggest United States grocery delivery app by sales, in April began sending warning emails to customers who have been flagged by shoppers as troublemakers. Hi, the emails begin. We recently received a report of your behavior going against our community guidelines. The notices caution customers not to berate shoppers, argue over out-of-stock items, or their own murky directions, or refuse to show identifications for alcohol. Repeat offenders can be kicked off the app, according to the company. Instacart relies on more than 600,000 shoppers, all gig workers, and says addressing customer rudeness has been a recent top priority for the company's team overseeing shoppers. Instacart said reports of rudeness fell by 90% after the warning notices started going out to customers flagged by multiple shoppers. The company said reports of rude behavior represented a very low percentage of total orders and that it also seeks feedback from customers. They have their own gripes. Two cans of black beans I ordered had massive dents in them. Massive dents, wrote a customer in recent days on an Instacart users and shoppers Reddit page with about 27,000 members. Shalise Talley turned to Instacart for groceries after knee surgery several months ago and said her experience has been mostly good, although one shopper arrived and said the tip assigned for the order wasn't enough to haul grocery bags up three flights of stairs Tally's apartment. She was like, have a day, Tally said. In St. Petersburg, Florida, PhD student Shelley Puchalaski said one Instacart order arrived smelling like cigarettes. 
I liken it to when you actually go to the grocery store, she said of the dust-ups. You experience it in the app form. Delzer, the shopper in New Hampshire, said some customers text nonstop while he fills their orders, quizzing him on the freshness of banana bread or the expiration dates on tubs of cottage cheese, and more recently fixate on how package sizes have gotten smaller while prices remain the same or higher. Alexander Morris, another New Hampshire shopper, said when a lactose-free milk was out of stock, he grabbed the whole milk the customer had approved as a substitute. Morris said the customer started shooting him messages through Instacart's app, arguing he hadn't selected it and asking why he thought he would choose such a replacement. Morris called Instacart's service line and asked to cancel the order. He also blocked and reported the customer. He must have been having a bad day, but I mean, you are having somebody else do the shopping for you, said Morris, who shops daily for Instacart up to 110 hours a week. On another Reddit page for Instacart shoppers, with 127,000 members, more than 300 replies and much commiseration rolled in after a shopper recently vented about a customer who requested an unsliced loaf of bread to be sliced after the shopper was driving out of the parking lot. The shopper said the customer texted, in all capitals, go back and get the bread sliced. DoorDash says it prohibits harassment by workers and users and that violators are subject to reduced service or deactivation. The company added that customers can share substitution preferences before or during the order. Uber said earlier in the year that it made changes to its app to address shoppers' pain points, including out-of-stock items. Over Easter weekend, Emma Rodriguez was filling a DoorDash order in Kansas City, Missouri, when she realized the store was out of pre-made baked potatoes. Rodriguez said she texted and called the customer but never heard back, so she proceeded to get everything else and drop off the groceries. Ten minutes later, she received a starchy message from the client asking where those potatoes were and what she was supposed to do. I try and keep my emotions out of it, Rodriguez said. And now, Jim Solish, my father's child, is turning 65. I was 33 when my father died, but in my grief I felt like a small child, not an adult who already had children. It's taken me years to understand that I was a child, even longer to grasp that I will be a child forever because time is an acid-tripping, unreliable narrator. In the days and weeks after my father died, every time I saw a person in his 60s, I had this sequence of thoughts. He sees me and remembers when he was my age. He can't believe how fast 30 years went by. I'll be 65 before I know what hit me, and then I'll be dead. I'll never squeeze enough out of this life because time is rushing like a high-speed train I can't stop. That was my life is short logic loop and I got stuck in it. For most of the next year, I hurtled down time's track several times a day toward the moment of my future death. Yet time also kept to its normal schedule, 
in which each hour consists of 60 minutes and the calendar functions perfectly, and my children learn to tie their shoes and throw a ball and ride a bike. I watch like a ghost from my deathbed. I was Bill Murray in Groundhog Day, which wouldn't be released for a couple of years. What did I have to do to leave this future in which I was always about to die? I had no idea. At some point, my mind released me. I exited the train. I was 33 now for most of the day, and I could mourn my father without fear. And here I am, a few blinks later, turning 65, the same age my father was when he died. I am not afraid I will die this year. I don't feel I am passing a milestone. I expected that I would surpass my father's age of death, but I didn't expect to feel grief. In this year, when we have become the same age, I feel as if I am losing my father again. Even though I've been fatherless for 32 years, he was always ahead of me, showing me the way. He was older, because fathers are older than their children. If I am older, is he still my father? Welcome to my new logic loop. I see my father on the train station, platform 65, waving to me as I hurtle past. I am traveling alone the rest of the way. Time is abandoned. Again. And now I realize how young my father was when he died. That he craved all the joys and temptations he always had. That his insecurities hadn't expired because he reached a certain birthday. Now I know that the voice inside his head was still youthful and rebellious. That time and in all its trickery lets old people walk around forever young inside. Their core selves immune from life's chronology even as their bodies bend and twist and their hands spot with age. Now I know that we are all children still, dressed in our costumes of age, time's makeup perfectly applied. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.